Welcome to this Peer Voice panel discussion on COVID-19. This activity comprises two presentations featuring Drs. Anil Gupta and Joseph Villaseca. At any time during this presentation, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues. Hello, this is Dr. Anil Gupta. I'm a family physician and principal investigator at the William Ulcer Health Center in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Welcome to this activity on managing COVID-19 in the outpatient setting. Joining me in this discussion is my colleague, Dr. Joseph Villaseca, Professor of Medicine, University of Vic, Central Catalonia University in Barcelona, Spain, and Chief of Service of Primary Healthcare at the Althea Foundation in Manresa, Catalonia, Spain. We're nearly three years in the COVID-19 pandemic, and we've learned a lot during that time, wouldn't you say, Joseph? Yes, yes, we've learned a lot of messages, a lot of, uh, of experiences, and sometimes, unfortunately, we ourselves experienced the disease, and we learn a lot from our own experience. Right. One of the most important things we've learned is not to turn our backs on this virus. Despite effective vaccines and other measures to prevent infection, it remains a serious public health threat. In this activity, we'll focus on managing COVID-19 in the outpatient setting with the goal of minimizing the risk of people getting severely ill or dying from COVID-19. We'll try to outline who to treat and why. In the next presentation, which Joseph will uh, carry, we will discuss the tools we have and how well they work. Joseph, can you review COVID-19 infection and its progression with us? Yes, of course, it's a pleasure. Well, everybody knows that this virus has a crown of spikes. This uh, crown gives the name in Latin to the virus, Corona, uh, coronavirus. This is an RNA virus, and the proteins in the spike are responsible to interact with the cell and then uh, through an um, endocytosis mechanism, the virus enters into the cell, the virus unfolds, the RNA replicates, and then after that, the virus, the new viruses are built and through an exocytosis go out of the cell and infect new cells. So this virus uh, needs to be replicated into the human cells. The disease continues to evolve with unpredictable and variable clinical implications. Nowadays, I think it is very difficult for a family doctor or for many physicians to know the different strains and the different variants that exist worldwide. Perhaps it is important to remind that uh, today most of the variants are Omicron variants whereas the Delta variant uh, is reduced to a minority of viruses. And uh, it is important, as you mentioned, uh, Anil, uh, to know what is the local variant, the variant existing in a certain region, area, country, in order to select the most appropriate treatments to be uh, effective for this local variant, for this specific variant. And uh, vaccination is also very important. Vaccination has shown to be effective at the population level. 
Even some individuals have concerns for possible side effects. Uh, I would say from my own experience as a patient that a severe coronavirus infection is much worse than the side effects of a vaccination. Actually, uh, many of us were infected with vaccines were not available neither to the population or to the health workers. Uh, when we look at the map of the world, we can see that uh, there are differences in the vaccination rate comparing country to country. Um, in addition, we must have in mind that first, the number of infected people and second, the number of vaccinated people can be more or less accurate depending on the registries existing in this country, how the health system is, how we register vaccinated people, how we notify, how we report the number of infected, the number of vaccinated people. If infected people are tested and we have positive tests, we count only infected people or we count people with symptoms, then this can lead to several differences between countries and the numbers can be more or less accurate. Unfortunately, the, in several countries, we still miss some information regarding to the infection rate and the vaccination rate. What, what can you tell us, uh, Emil, uh, regarding to the management of COVID-19 across the continuum of care? Sure, thanks, Joseph. Um, so in stage one, as, as I'm showing here, um, it is the virus replication that is causing most of the symptoms, which are similar to many other respiratory viruses. Often there's nonspecific symptoms, such as fever or cough or myalgias. Interestingly, sore throat is now a very common symptom with the Omicron variants when it was not with the earlier variants or strains. Next, there's a pulmonary phase where lung inflammation and pneumonia occurs and patients often present with shortness of breath or cough. In later stages, extensive inflammation and coagulopathies become more common and unfortunately more serious outcomes can occur. I want to highlight what you said that uh, nowadays the coronavirus infection may seem a sore throat or simply a sore throat, but if those patients are not tested, if those patients are not identified, uh, sometimes they can have a very serious disease that can lead to hospitalization or even to death. So uh, we'll discuss later on perhaps how to identify those patients at risk and not to minimize uh, patients with sore throat and um, to encourage patients to be tested. Uh, absolutely, and, and, and you're absolutely right. How they start their presentation of the infection does not tell us how unfortunately they might finish their uh, symptoms with this infection. Joseph, uh, can you discuss which patients are at risk for a progression? Yes. Uh, there are a type of patients that clearly are at risk and we identified from uh, trials and from studies that patients with Down syndrome and patients uh, treated with immunosuppressants 
or patients who have any disease that produces immunosuppression are patients at highest risk. Other risk factors have also been identified, such as obesity, hypertension, and so on. But even if we identify clearly the group of patients who are at risk, the challenge is to identify those patients apparently healthy that can be at risk, that can be in a struggle, and that we perhaps, at the first glance, look as, let's say, mild patients instead of severe. So, Anil, can you give us some light of any guidelines in order to identify uh, what patients can be at risk at the population level? So I will try to um, show which individuals are at risk of COVID-19 hospitalization. And I will use this data, which is from British Columbia here in Canada. We can see a young person with two or more doses, even if having underlying risk factors, has a very low risk of hospitalization. Older individuals substantially benefit from vaccination but if they have multiple risk factors, still their risk remains quite high. And Daniel, do you think that this, uh, this guideline could be used out of Canada? Uh, absolutely. Now, I, I, I would uh, preface this data in that it is only over a brief time period from December 2021 into January 2022. And it is not a large number of individuals but it is the only such data that incorporates vaccine, risk factors, and age, and tries to define risk. Excellent, so this will be of help for us. Can you clarify who is eligible for treatment? So uh, again, I, I will talk about data in my backyard of Ontario, Canada, and this has changed as of December 12, 2022. Anyone that is COVID positive with symptoms less than five days and is either 60 years of age or older or 18 and older and is immunocompromised or 18 to 59 with a chronic medical condition such as diabetes or chronic heart and lung disease is eligible to obtain this medicine through a physician and pharmacist. And that is, of course, Nermatrelvir, Ritonavir that I'm talking about here. Joseph, can you discuss uh, more on availability and access to treatment in Europe? Yes, uh, you know that Europe is actually uh, a group of different countries. It's not a federation like the Canada or like the United States, not yet. So there are differences. Even there is a regulatory agency uh, the European Med Medicines Agency, the availability of drugs depends on national regulations uh, and also in the national regional financing system. So guidelines are not homogeneous. Guidelines may vary from country to country and even from region to region. So uh, some drugs, the main drugs uh, are available uh, Nirmatrovir, Ritronavir, Remdesivir are available. Monoclonal antibodies 
are not available for all hospitals and even the available treatments are subject to regulations so perhaps in some countries in Europe in practice are nearly unavailable or of little use. So I'll carry on now and I'll discuss what are some of the challenges to managing outpatient COVID-19. Obviously, you can't treat someone unless they've been identified as a COVID-19 patient. And PCR testing seems to be less available while rapid antigen testing is not as accurate. Also, it seems many individuals are not as interested in being tested when symptomatic. Moreover, as the disease is often mild initially, patients are refusing treatment. Unfortunately, when and if they become more symptomatic, they might be past stage two and therefore not eligible for treatment. Drug-drug interactions and kidney function are also factors with certain medications, which we will discuss in the next section. As Joseph mentioned, access to therapies vary country to country, with the more affluent countries having better access. Also, some of the therapies are administered intravenously and require a dedicated infrastructure. In summary, hopefully we have reviewed today why COVID-19 treatments are still necessary and for whom. Which individuals are at risk for progression of disease and should receive treatment. In the next section, we will discuss what they should be treated with. Thank you very much. Hello, this is uh, Dr. Joseph Vilaseca, Professor of Medicine at the University of Vic, Central Catalonia University, uh, and Chief of Service of Primary Health Care at the Altea Foundation in Manresa, Catalonia, Spain. Welcome to part two of this discussion on managing COVID-19 in the outpatient setting. I'm joined by Dr. Anil Gupta, family physician and principal investigator at the William Osler Health Centre in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Hello, Dr. Gupta. Hello, Joseph. It's a pleasure having you on board. In the second part of the discussion, we will explore current options for patient management of COVID-19. What are the implications for which therapies we use, when we use them, and how we monitor our patients. The WHO recommendations for non-severe COVID-19 are clear. The treatment with nirmatrelvir ritonavir is strongly recommended, whereas molnupiravir is conditional for mitigated strategies to reduce potential harms that should be implemented. The uh, monoclonal antibodies, sotrovimab, candesivimab, indevimab, are um, recommended conditionally 
for example, sotrovimab is recommended for patients at highest risk of hospitalization, whereas casimvimab uh, and imdevimab uh, have limited efficacy against Omicron BA1 variant. For this reason, it's conditionally recommended. And remdesivir, an uh, intravenous therapy, is recommended conditionally for patients at highest risk of hospitalization. But we must have in mind also that this recommendation, uh, the WHO, uh, has a conditional recommendation against corticosteroids, ivermectin, fluvoxamine, and also against convalescent plasma, colchicine, hydroxychloroquine, and lopinavir, ritonavir, uh, a number of therapies that we used at the beginning of the disease in 2020. And the United States National Institute for Health recommendations for uh, outpatient therapy are uh, also in line that first symptoms management is recommended and uh, against the use of corticosteroids um, in absence of another indication, not in all patients, just in patients with certain respiratory symptoms. And uh, for patients who are at risk of progressing in severe COVID-19, the preferred uh, therapies in the United States, first, ritonavir, uh, nirmatolvir, and second, remdesivir, perhaps because the first one is oral and the second is intravenous. There are other alternative therapies available. Joseph, can you go through some of the data for the most commonly recommended therapies? Yes, yes, uh, it's a pleasure. Um, for example, we can mention uh, some studies that have been carried out on the efficacy of treatments. For example, the EPIC uh, study, this uh, study is a double-blind, randomized, control trial um, in which patients were symptomatic, unvaccinated, non-hospitalized adults with high-risk progression to a severe coronavirus disease. So there were assigned uh, to a combination of nirmatrovir plus ritonavir orally or placebo. And uh, the results are clearly in favor of the treatment uh, rather than placebo. So it is clear that uh, the efficacy of the treatment um, is in place. So no discussion because of all the existing deaths were in the uh, placebo arm. So this is something that is, uh, is relevant. And if we, if we compare to placebo, we can see that uh, any adverse event, adverse event occurred more in the placebo group and the placebo arm rather than in the intervention nematovir plus ritonavir arm. What is surprising? Uh, what do you think, Anil? Uh, is this sound? Yeah, so Joseph, I, I, I agree. I, I think mainly it's the disease. So they weren't side effects of the placebo because there's no ingredient, but just disease progression was more predominant in those that got placebo. So on that note, uh, I'll speak to the one big issue with prescribing 
this combination of, of uh, nermatrelvir and, uh, and ritonavir is the drug-drug interactions. I personally use the Liverpool COVID-19 drug interaction checker and I find even in the most complicated patients, I can review all of the medications within one to two minutes. You know, when we prescribe these, these treatments, these antiviral uh, treatments, uh, the challenge is to avoid interactions with the existing treatments of the patient. So um, I find very interesting the, the scale that you mentioned. And uh, we can go on discussing the efficacy of, of these treatments. There is another study uh, called uh, Move Out, and this is also a clinical trial, double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled, to assess the efficacy uh, and safety of the treatment with molnupiravir started within the five days after the onset of the symptoms and in non-hospitalized, unvaccinated adults with mild to moderate um, coronavirus disease. And uh, clearly, uh, this study um, shows that the treatment with molnupiravir reduced the risk of hospitalization or death in at-risk unvaccinated adults with COVID-19. And uh, regarding to the adverse events, uh, comparing the two arms, molnupiravir to placebo, uh, again, more than 700 patients per arm, just a reminder, and uh, more or less there were the same number of adverse events in the two arms. What is, uh, again, surprising that in the placebo group there were adverse events. Um, Anil, what do you think? Uh, the same explanation perhaps is the progression of the disease? It is the disease that produces the, the symptoms? Absolutely. Yes, I, I completely agree with that. Then, Anil, given that you were the, the main author of, the, of a study on the evidence of, for monoclonal antibodies in early COVID, uh, the Sotrovimab, can you tell us something about the study that you were leading? Sure. Um, uh, thanks, Joseph. So yes, it was a real honor to be the lead author of this study. It was an outpatient study in individuals at risk for progression of COVID-19, defined as either having obesity, chronic kidney or heart disease, chronic lung disease, diabetes, or age over 55 with symptom onset of less than five days. There was a 79% relative risk reduction in hospitalization and death. And as you will notice with most of the studies we have talked about, this is a day 29 endpoint. I will now talk about another intravenous treatment, remdesivir. In the registration study, the population was similar to the sertrovimab study. Symptom onset was, however, less than seven days instead of five days. 0.7% of the actively treated group versus 5.3% of the placebo group was hospitalized. This is an 87% relative risk reduction. 1.6% of the actively treated group versus 8.3% of the placebo group required medical attention. What, what can you tell us about the safety of remdesivir? 
Uh, you know, Joseph, like all the treatments we've shown today, it was found to be very safe and very well tolerated. So perhaps the question would be, uh, when remdesivir, when sotrovimab, or who to so, treat, who, who to treat with remdesivir, who to treat with sotrovimab? Right, and and every country has their own treatment regime and pathway, and it seems like the orals are option one in in most countries, and these intravenous treatments, which are harder to give, and require more infrastructure, are options two and three, perhaps based on drug-drunk interactions or other factors or other reasons why we can't use the orals. Uh, I would add something uh, in Europe, you know, uh, perhaps the treatment is recommended by the guidelines, but the treatment is unavailable in the hospitals. And even the treatment is recommended, it is not easy to obtain the treatment. For this reason, if the treatment isn't available, then you cannot administer it. <laughs> right. So the, the availability of treatments is a challenge, and not only in Europe, but uh, worldwide. Right. So, what is the call to action for clinicians and patients regarding early treatment of COVID-19? Patients should be clearly identified from the beginning and patients should be treated as soon as possible. Otherwise, perhaps when we want to treat the patient, it will be too late. I would agree with you, Joseph, and I would say my call is to the clinicians. They must be aware of what's available in their local community and treat those high-risk individuals and try to prevent these hospitalizations and unnecessary deaths. This has been an activity published by Peer Voice.